Now, truth and a really hard truth for a lot of us to swallow, which is that church, community, this is the, the, the buzzword, the sort of overused word, right, is really hard because we are sinful, broken people. And yet at the same time, there persists this expectation that church should be perfect. Church could be perfect. If we just did the right things, found the right system, figured out the right way to do it, either went back to the way it used to be or went into the future into some new sort of thing, if we just found the perfect thing, then it would all be, it would be good and it wouldn't be messy and complicated and frustrating anymore. And I would, I would argue that in my experience as a pastor, there is no area of the Christian life that is more burdened by our unrealistic expectations than community. One more quote. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this almost 100 years ago, some incredibly insightful words on community. He says, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished. If genuine community is to survive, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of that community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Let me read that second part one more time. Those who love their dream of a community their ideal, the the system that they think will work, their book that they've read about what church could be like, those who love that more than the actual people that you go to church with and sit next to on Sunday morning and meet in homes with during the week becomes a destroyer of that community. These are sobering words. Our expectations can actually destroy the very thing that we long for. Now, we all have expectations coming into this. Some of those expectations flow from really good, positive experiences. At some point in our life, we had deep, meaningful relationships, and we're just trying to find that again. We're trying to recreate that experience. Others of us, we've had some really negative experiences, and so we come to a new place, a new community, hoping that this is going to be the group of people that won't let me down. Now, like it or not, whatever sort of experiences we bring in to church with us, we are a part of the church, capital C Church, when we commit to following Jesus. There is no such thing as a churchless Christian. And if you've been here for this conversation, this should sound a little bit familiar to you. We've been talking about this a lot as we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134. And we've been looking at these psalms as a way to frame our conversation about discipleship. Discipleship is another one of these words. It's become a buzzword. It's lost some of its meaning. And so we've been trying to open up our definition, widen our perspective on this, come at it with some fresh eyes. Because again, depending on your past experiences, we bring different things into the discipleship conversation. For some of us, we hear that word and we hear a program with a curriculum and there's worksheets and homework and blanks that need to be filled in. For others, discipleship is only for those people who are really serious about their faith. And so discipleship is this this studious, rigorous, uh, even severe process. 
Others, you hear discipleship, you, you hear an obligation, a set of rules, these hoops, spiritual hoops that you have to jump through. But what we've been saying is that discipleship is formation into a way of life. Formation into a way of life. And looking at it this way, defining it this way, helps us to see that discipleship is not specifically a Christian practice or activity. Other rabbis at the time of Jesus had disciples. Buddha has disciples. We are all a disciple of something. We are all being formed to some way of life, whether we've named it or realized it or are aware of it or not. So we've been arguing here in this series, this conversation, that these psalms are helpful in forming us in the ways of Jesus, in Jesus' way of life. They speak to so many big themes, work, family, hope, service, repentance, worship, and they've reinforced for us the truth that discipleship, especially in the ways of Jesus, is a journey. We're headed somewhere. We're moving in a direction. It is intentional. This is not a haphazard sort of process that you kind of drift your way into. You must be very thoughtful and intentional in this. And then it is communal. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus on your own. And so this is where we land. This is where we're going to end our conversation. Psalm 133, once again on this theme of community. And this is so important because... Whatever way of life is discipling us, is forming us, it's the people that we are with, the communities that we are a part of, that's the crucible for our formation. And yet for so many followers of Jesus, we don't allow community to do what it is designed to do because we crush it under the weight of our expectations. So I think we need to take a fresh look at this overused word. And Psalm 133 is a good gift to us for this endeavor. So as we've done throughout this series, we've been reading these out loud as a way to reinforce the communal nature and experience that the original Hebrew pilgrims would have had, but then also for us to remember that we're in this together. So let's read Psalm 133 together off the screen. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Psalm opens with how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Psalm is credited to David. David is, is the Hebrew people, the, the people of Israel, their most important king, one of the central characters in the Old Testament. But in addition to that, in addition to his uh, being a king and, and being this sort of hinge figure in the Old Testament story, he's also a poet and a musician. You get the impression here that David is at one of these big gatherings, one of these festivals, one of these celebrations, and he's looking out over the crowd, feeling the good vibes of all these people being together, and he runs and he grabs his harp, and he just dashes off this little tune. And again, what, what he sees, what inspires him here is the unity and the togetherness of his people, 
And the key word in this first verse is that word good. Now, this is a word that we use for all kinds of things. It becomes very bland, I think, in the English language. We say, you know, how was your day? Oh, I was good. How was your burrito? Oh, I was good. This is not how David is using this word good, okay? Good uh, translated from the Hebrew word tov, which is the same word used in Genesis chapter 1 when God looks at what he creates and calls it good. It was Tov, it was Tov, it was Tov, it was very good. What David is doing here in this sort of subtle way is he's connecting the unity that he's witnessing to this idea, this huge Old Testament idea of shalom. And we've talked a little bit about this in this series, but I want to do a quick review here. Shalom is the way that God intended the world to function. When he looked at what he created in Genesis 1 and called it very good, what he was looking at is shalom. And we've been talking about it as a hierarchy of right relationships. God, humans, and the rest of creation. So what David is saying here right out of the gate in verse 1 is that when we live in unity, when we are in right relationship with God and with each other, it is a picture of shalom, a picture of the way that God created the world to function. Now, that's pretty awesome all by itself, but again, David, as a poet, he can't help himself. And so he gives us two pictures, two really interesting similes. Verse 2, the goodness of this unity, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not a euphemism that I use all that often. <laughs> I would encourage you, though, to try it out at some point, okay? So, then, like, next time you go on vacation and you have a great time on vacation and you're back at work and your coworker says, how was your trip? Just, you know, run this by them. <laughs> it was epic. It was like precious oil on the beard, running down the beard of Aaron. Just see how your coworkers respond to this. All right, it seems like this is a good thing, but we don't, I don't, we don't really know what's going on here. So let's break this down a bit, all right? Starting with oil. Oil was and continues to be in many places a symbol of God's presence. And it was something that was used in all kinds of, of ceremonies. It was used in worship ceremonies. It was used to, uh, to ordain and commission a priest. This is the connection here in this verse to Aaron. If you're not familiar with Aaron, he's the brother of Moses. Again, central, critical figures in the Old Testament story. And Aaron and his descendants are called to be the priests, the religious leadership in many ways, for the people of Israel. So it was used in worship ceremonies, used in these priestly ceremonies. It was also used to anoint kings. David himself anointed with oil when he was recognized as the next king of Israel. And so part of what David is saying here is that when there's unity in community, when people are together, God's people are together, that is a sign of God's presence. It's like the oil used to signify his presence with us. But it's even more than this, right? Because this, this image is so rich. There's this abundance that's described here. Usually in one of these, these sorts of ceremonies, There'd just be a little bit of oil that would be used, a dab on the, on the thumb or on the finger. You kind of just put a little 
you know, smudge on someone's forehead. But here, the oil, it's running down the beard. It's getting all over the clothes. It's going everywhere. This abundance is messy. You can't control it. It's good, but it's going to get everywhere. It's sort of like when my son eats ice cream. Like that. (laughs) You get the idea. The goodness of unity, of community, David says, is like this. This uncontrollable, messy, flowing, awesome presence of God. And then in verse 3, another simile. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, to understand this comparison, we need a little bit of geographical context. Mount Hermon and Mount Zion, two different mountains in Israel. You can see that they're pretty far apart geographically. Hermon to the north, Zion to the south. Zion is where Jerusalem was located. This was the mountain, the hill that these Hebrew pilgrims were walking up as they sang this psalm. Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. It's about 9,000 feet at its highest peak. And it's the only place in Israel that gets regular snowfall. And if you are so inclined, you could even go there and ski in the winter. Now, those heights, in the cool of the evening, there's this dew point, right? This water that is collected on the ground. And just looking at that map, you can see there's no physical way that the dew of Hermon could fall on Zion. But if somehow that were to happen, it would have been seen as a good thing. Water, always a blessing in a dry place. And so again, here's what David is saying. Here's what he's witnessing, this unity that's so ridiculous, unlikely, miraculous, and life-giving. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on Zion. Now these are the pictures that David paints, oil flowing down the beard, the dew of Hermon falling on Zion, probably made a lot more sense to these Hebrew pilgrims. But think about it for a moment. What simile, what picture gets this idea home for you? Unity is like a cup of coffee that never goes empty. A bowl of uh, peanut M&Ms that never runs out. A child who falls asleep right after you put them down for bed and then sleeps all through the night. (laughs) Whatever image for you speaks miraculous blessings, surprising grace, ridiculous abundance, David says, that's how good it is when we live in unity. That's what our experience of community could be like. Now, as you're listening to all of this, you may be thinking, wow, Psalm 133 is only adding to the weight of our expectations. Who doesn't want to be in a community where amazing, ridiculous, awesome things are happening? Who doesn't want to experience the goodness of this sort of unity? And let's, let's be honest here, for our deeply, deeply, probably haven't had that experience. And we also live in a world that is deeply, deeply divided across almost any line that you can draw. And it's no different in the church. Disunity plagues the church. So what I want to do for a couple of moments is unpack some misconceptions that I think we have about community, about what it means to be unified. And then we're going to spend some time talking about what this looks like for us here at Discovery. So the first misconception, I think, is that a unified community 
does not mean that we are a uniform community. Back to this idea, this reality of the divisions in our world, sort of the flip side of that is it's very easy for us to craft a world where we only hear from people who agree with us. And where it's very easy to silence or tune out different voices or worldviews. And this is a problem, again, all over the place, but especially pernicious within the church. A couple places I see it showing up. I think it shows up in theological circles where people get together and they write a statement and there's 12 points. And if you disagree with even one of the 12 points, then now you are on the outside of that community. I see this in churches that program themselves to these silly levels where you have small groups for 29-year-old vegans who surf goofy-footed. I mean, just absurd kind of stuff, right? This is not the kind of gathering that David is witnessing when he sees his people, the people of Israel, and all of their diversity gathered together. Unity does not mean uniformity. We don't have to look the same, talk the same, sound the same to be a part of a unified community. Second misconception, a unified community is not boring. Sometimes when words like unity get tossed around, we think of sort of gray, beige, two-dimensional, flat monotony. But the images that David gives us in Psalm 133 are anything but boring. And how God takes all of us, as messy as we are, and weaves our crazy stories together is infinitely interesting. When you're part of a community where everyone is pulling in the same direction and getting awesome stuff done, that's about the most energizing, non-boring thing that I can think of. Third misconception, a unified community is not insular. This is a a very, very strong impulse, especially within faith communities. To turn the focus on ourselves, this is the us for and no more mentality, the holy huddle. I ran into this mentality head on when I was working with college students in Boston, or at least a certain segment of students in our ministry in Boston. And and some of that came from what I would call a good impulse. Being a, a Christian on campus at a lot of Boston schools was hard. Those schools were not very open, not very congenial to the ways of Jesus. And so a lot of students felt like they were always on the defensive, always had their guard up, but they just wanted a safe place where they didn't have to defend their beliefs all the time. And again, I I, I get that. But there's just nothing about a Jesus community that is insular. Our God is an outward-looking God. He has an outward-focused posture right from the very beginning. He creates to extend and share himself, to extend and share his love. The pinnacle of his creation is human beings, who he calls to partner with him in that, to be fruitful and multiply, to steward and care for his creation, to work with him in extending that love to others. Even after his creation rebels against his good Order, he chooses people 
to extend his love and blessing through. Genesis chapter 12, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was given to Abraham. We're going to talk more about that next Sunday, just a preview there. We get to the New Testament. We see this over and over again. Jesus sends us out. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Jesus' community is an outward-facing community. Unity does not mean that we are insular. Now, let's get practical for just a minute and talk about how we hope to live this out here at Discovery, how we hope to be a reflection of the goodness that David describes in Psalm 133. And as we go through this, you'll see that, that, that this is sort of the antidote to these misconceptions. So I want to start with this. These are, I think, the three foundational building blocks or environments that are vital to our formation in the ways of Jesus. And if you are a note taker, this does not correspond to the Venn diagram in your notes. Just wait for it. It's coming, okay? I promise. <laughs> All right, but these three building blocks or environments are gatherings, groups, and then generosity. Gatherings are what we are doing right now. When we get together on Sunday morning, when we worship, when we take communion, when we examine the scriptures, when we meet new people, when we hang out together, this is an important environment for our formation. Generosity has to do with how we live our faith out. And this includes everything from serving on a team here on Sunday morning to tutoring kids who need help academically to tithing and using our time and talents to build up the church and the kingdom of God here in Davis and beyond. Generosity is expressed in how we treat our neighbors and how we respond to injustice, and in how we share the good news of Jesus with everyone, like he commanded us to in Mark chapter 16. So gatherings, generosity, two vital, important environments. We've actually talked about both of those in this pilgrim series, Psalm 122 and 123, if you want to go back and listen to those. But what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is focus on groups, because groups are ground zero for formation in the ways of Jesus. And I would argue for having a beard of Aaron experience of community. Our discovery groups, you heard a little bit about them in the announcements. Want to go you know, deeper into this conversation now. These are groups of about 8 to 15 adults meeting in homes around Davis and Woodland. And again, they are the lifeblood of our church. Every group is going to have its own sort of flavor and uniqueness depending on the leader and the personalities of the people in that group. But each group is going to have these three values that permeate them. The first one is this. This is the truth that we are better together. My hope and prayer is that this theme has just become obvious as we've talked about it over and over and over again in this pilgrim series. We're better together. This value is the antidote to uniformity. Now, you may have heard the phrase that you can go fast alone, but you can go far together. Great, great truth. I would paraphrase that a little bit to say it this way. It is simpler to go alone or to go with people who are just like you. But it is way more tov. 
It is way better. It is good to go together and to go with people who are not like you. This is what you will actually discover when you go to a group. There are a lot of people there who are not like you. <laughs> There's awkward people there. There, re there really is. <laughs> There's people who think differently, who ask different questions, who like different stuff. There's people who talk about their kids all the time and others who are obsessed with work or their studies. There are people who root for the wrong sports teams. People who vote differently than you. People who read books that you might think are just a little heretical. There are people from all over the state, all over the country, all over the world representing different perspectives and cultures and values. And that makes it so that it's not always comfortable or easy, but it's good. And one of the reasons it's good is because it is a reflection of the gospel. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the good news. People cut off from God, divided against one another, now experiencing restored relationship with God and with each other. This is good. This is tov. This is shalom. And yeah, it's going to be a little bit messy, like oil flowing down the beard. But it's also going to be miraculous and beautiful and life-giving, like the dew of Hermon flowing on Zion. So we're better together. Our second value here is that fun is spiritual. This is the antidote to boring community. There's this, there's this sort of strain within our faith that says if it wasn't serious, then it wasn't spiritual enough. Maybe you've been a part of one of these communities. <laughs> and that if it's too fun, then it was kind of fluffy and you didn't really do it. Yeah, community can be hard, it can be messy, but again, the picture that Psalm 133 paints for us is one of joy. And I think that when we press into the messiness, what we discover on the other side of that is that community can be really fun. And fun is spiritual. They worship together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. It's fun to eat together and spend time together. It's fun to see new people get connected it's fun to build memories and have shared experiences. It's fun to work hard together on a project and watch God come through in miraculous ways. And it is fun. It is so fun to see lives transformed. We get way too hung up on the program going to parties. Enough Bible verses in it. When Jesus is going to parties and inviting us to hang out, because he knew as well as anyone, fun is spiritual. Third thing, we are committed to the value of being a hero-maker community. Now, this may be totally new language for most of us here. So let me talk about this for a moment. 
This is our way of thinking about the mission that Jesus invites us into. Mark 16, go and preach the good news to everyone. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' prayer over his disciples is, you sent me, here's that sending posture of God, that outwardly focused posture of God, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, that they may be one even as we are one. There's that theme of unity. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus does not pray them or pray that they become an insular, homogenous community. He prays them out into a mission, a disciple-making, good news-sharing mission. Now, one way that we reveal our expectations for community is through the questions that we ask. Do you ask questions like, what, do I, what am I going to get out of this? What do I gain from being a part of this group of people? Again, that's not totally the wrong question, but we want to shift to being a community that asks hero maker questions. What am I able to give? Who can I invest in? How can I contribute? How can I help this mission move forward? This is one of the primary reasons our discovery groups are open, always looking to help new people get connected. It's to share in this mission of multiplying disciples. And guys, this is not just a good idea. This is not just uh, a command that we're supposed to obey. This is world-changing stuff. This is why we want to think of it as from this hero-maker perspective. Jesus says this, The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's a lot of conversation and confusion about when is Jesus coming back and how does the world end and, and, and someone is always predicting it's going to be two weeks from now or whatever. Jesus says real clearly how it's going to go. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world and then the end will come. <clears throat> when you invest in someone's life, when you make a disciple who goes on to make another disciple, you are not just, again, doing a nice spiritual activity. You are changing the course of history. You are changing the world. You are hero-making. Now, I have two challenges for us as we end this Pilgrims series. The first is one that we've talked about and issued several times here, but it needs to be said again. Spend some time thinking, and can you really answer the question, who is discipling you? What way of life are you being formed into? And if in your answer to that question you realize it's not Jesus' way of life, then the invitation this morning would be, to, to choose that. This goes all the way back to where we started, Psalm 120. This journey begins with repentance, with turning, with saying this way that I am going, this way that I'm being formed by, it's not good. And I want something different. And so we turn from that to be shaped by Jesus' way of life. If you would like to talk more about that, I would love to talk with you about that this morning. Second challenge, again, very straightforward. Get involved in a discovery group. 
Now is as good a time, maybe the best time in our entire calendar year to get involved with a group. And, and out um, right behind the doors there, there's a table with these cards on them that talk about the groups that we have going right now. Take one of those, email someone this week, find out more about the groups. Again, talk to me afterwards. The next couple of Sundays, our group leaders will be around with name tags on if you want to meet them uh, and, and find out more about their group. Now is as good a time as any to get involved in a discovery group. What you will find is that the intersection of relationships and joy and multiplication, these three big ideas that we've been talking about, is disciples who are on mission. I really believe this. Participation in group life brings those values together and will form you into the ways of Jesus. So get involved in a group. Now, one final thought here before we close. <clears throat> I've had an idea for a while. If I ever have the opportunity to write a book, I'm going to call it How My Friends Saved My Life. And I have dibs on this, by the way, so please don't steal my idea. <laughs> now, I know this is not entirely theologically sound because Jesus saves, but the primary way that Jesus has saved me is through the people in my life. And so all this book would be would just be a chapter on each of those people who have been a hero at some point in my story. I'd do a chapter on my parents, a chapter on my wife Amy, a chapter on my kids. I'd have at least a chapter, it'd probably take multiple chapters to talk about all the crazy small groups I've been a part of. I'd have a chapter on Ryan and Chip and Bruce and Bob and again all the people who have had an impact on my life. Now, speaking of Bob, he's a really good friend of mine who I met when I worked at Mount Hermon. Now, this is the camp in Santa Cruz, not the mountain in Israel that we were just talking about, just to be clear. I worked at Mount Hermon for a couple of summers. My, my title was staff counselor, which meant that I was this sort of combination of pastor and RA and older brother to 120 college students who came to staff the camp for 15 weeks each summer, and, and the way that it worked is I'd have these weekly check-ins with Bob, and Bob would ask me, you know, how, how are things going? How, you know, how's the, how are, are people getting along? How's the community developing? And I just, I would just vent about all the craziness that was going on, the pranks and the staff that were perpetually late and all the making out that was going on. People called it Mount Hormone. That was the... <laughs> That was the joke, but true. <laughs> and I'd say, Bob, what do I do with these? These kids are crazy. What, do I, how, what am I supposed to do with this? And he'd, he'd sit there and he'd smile at me and he'd listen, you know, again to my rant. And then he'd say, you know, Steve, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. And I'd say, but Bob, I don't think you heard what I said. There's, there, there's pranks. There's like, there, there's girls' underwear hanging in a tree outside of my room that somebody stole. And, and the ropes course team, they, they won't talk to each other anymore. And did I mention all the making out? And he'd say, you know, Steve, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. Now, what is Bob saying? 
If you noticed, all those images in Psalm 133, they're all descending. Running down, running down, falling. You see, community in all of its messy, awkward, frustrating reality, community is a grace. It's one of God's gifts to us. Because his kingdom is a kingdom of right relationships. And what Bob was saying there is this. If you want to be serious about this, about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, about this process of being formed into Jesus' way of life, you have to deal with people. And you have to learn to love people in all of their awkward, messy, frustrating reality. Because the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. You see... People who want a community where everyone looks like them and talks like them and and, and keeps all the other bad, wrong people out, what those people really want is hell. Because heaven looks like this. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's what heaven is going to look like. David says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Friends, the Christian community is not going to be perfect. Discovery Christian Church is not a perfect church. Our discovery groups are not going to be perfect. But the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. What that means is, when we live into that reality, we can have a taste of what heaven is like right here, right now. And so the only question is, are you in? Are you in? Are you in? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the Psalms, for the spark of 